Two weeks ago, we kicked off our Summer in the Psalms series. And we had a panel on stage where we, we walked around the, the, the table and we showed everyone kind of how to engage the Psalms in prayer and how that can change our lives. And so today, it's my privilege to pick up in Psalm 71 today. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open with me to Psalm 71, and we're going to read that in just a few minutes. But I want to set up for you what is taking place in Psalm 71. Psalm 71 is near and dear to my heart, because it's a story of a seasoned saint. It's the story of a saint who has trusted God all of his life. And as he nears the end of his life, he is weak and frail, and his enemies have heard about it. And his enemies are coming after him. The rumor is out. And and he's revealing his heart to God. And and he pins it down for us so that we may have it. And it's near and dear to my heart because my life has been fundamentally and powerfully changed by older believers. In fact, I was raised oftentimes by my grandparents. There were several seasons throughout my childhood where my family lived with my grandparents. And my, my grandma and, and grandfather, names are Mammy and Pop Pop, uh, discipled me. They poured the truth of God into my life. As a child, I learned the importance of finding our hope in Christ and Christ alone. Regardless of circumstance, I saw my grandparents looking to Jesus for everything. God, for some reason, has decided to bless me continually with older, faithful people to pour into my life. When I went to seminary, my wife Sarah and I, after graduating from college, moved to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And about halfway through seminary, I remember coming home one day and walking in the door, and Sarah was there, and she could tell I was frustrated. And I said, I think I'm in the wrong place. She said, why? And in my naivety, I said, you know, I thought I was going to come to seminary and I was going to experience a seasoned older pastor who I could sit under a shade tree with and learn how to love people. That I'd be taught how to be a pastor. Well, there's a joke in seminary, and it's that we call it cemetery. It's a place where you go to die, right? It, it, instead, of, instead of learning and, and having your spirit uh, just, just moved by truths, oftentimes, if you're not careful, all this information can begin to be void of life. And my wife, who's wiser than me, said, why don't you go back, don't stop, do another semester, and let's see what happens. And so I entered into that semester pretty much deciding I wasn't going to come back after that. And by the mercy and grace of God, he intersected my life with a man named Max Barnett. Max was 71 years old when we met, and he had faithfully served as a prolific disciple maker at the University of Oklahoma for 30 years. For some reason, God gave me favor with Max. And Max called me to himself and asked me if I wanted to be discipled by him. And next thing I knew, I was traveling with this man, and, and, and I was experiencing what it was like to make disciples. And in his wisdom, I remember so many of the things that he told me, but one of, one of them that sticks out the most is this, and I probably shouldn't tell you this as I'm about to preach a sermon, but this is what he said. He said, Josh, you fancy yourself a preacher, don't you? 
25-year-old Josh goes, uh, maybe, I'm trying to be humble, but he called me out. He goes, Josh, do you know how many sermons I've heard in my life? And I said, no. He knew. He counted them up. And he said, I've, I've listened to this many sermons. Do you know how many, many I remember? I was like, I don't know. He said, five. And then he named them for me. And what the points were, I was like, well, that's impressive. This is really good. Maybe he's going to encourage me to be a great preacher. He said, Josh, I only remember five. Life change, although preaching is important, takes place through disciple-making relationships, through proximity. And I'm calling you to get close to me so that you can be changed. Well, I was just barely wise enough to say yes to that. (laughs) And so I jumped in and my life was changed forever. I got a vision for making disciples that I hadn't had previously. Older, faithful people of God have poured their life into me. And that's why I'm passionate about Psalm 71. We have an opportunity to humbly come before the Scripture today and present ourselves to God and to the psalmist in order to be discipled, in order to be changed. There are three points we're going to talk about today as we look at the psalmist's life. He encourages us to do three things. He's walked the road that we are walking, and he's encouraging us to follow. First, he encourages us to always, always take refuge in God. Always take refuge in God. Second, he tells us that we should live a life of remembrance. That we should consistently remember all that God has done. And third, he tells us to unceasingly rejoice. Let's pray together before we jump in. Holy Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you teach us from it. You change us by the power of your spirit as we interact with it. That your word is powerful and active and sharper than a double-edged sword to divide bone from marrow, to reveal from us what is right in our hearts and what needs to be changed, to help us understand what is truth and, and what is not in our lives. Thank you for your word and thank you for the psalmist who wrote this for us that we could follow his pattern of faithfulness. Lord, would you change our hearts today? Would you remind us of how great you are? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 71, the psalmist starts out by telling us that we should always take refuge in God. Follow me here in the first 13 verses. You're going to see his struggles come out. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. 
Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. The psalmist shows us that regardless of our circumstances, we should take refuge in God and God alone. Now that seems like an easy one for those of us who've been around the faith very long. That's what we would call a no-brainer. That's true. We should take refuge in the God who has saved us. But I think oftentimes we struggle with having a big picture of God. I think at times, if you're like me, you struggle with functional saviors. You struggle with functional saviors. You make good things, like maybe friends in your life, become ruling things because you turn to them for everything. And therefore, they become idols. If you're like me, you've got this really nasty thing on your iPhone that tells you how much time you spent on it each day. I was looking at that the other day, and I said, Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours of the day on my phone. And I would like to tell you that that was talking on it. That was probably only a portion. The rest of it was probably doing something else. To whom do we run? Where do we go? In confession, Josh Lilly often turns to escape, to to finding a way out of my current reality by living in a fantasy world called Facebook. Josh Lilly often turns to a man whom I love deeply named Jonathan. And he and I talk regularly, but oftentimes I make him God in my life. When we let good things become ruling things, they become idols. And I think that takes place in my heart and maybe in yours because our vision of God is not as great and grand as it should be. The psalmist understood that God and God alone was the place that he could find refuge. So step back with me for just a minute, and let's think about the greatness of God. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet Isaiah is looking at his hand. He's looking at his hand, and I have small hands. In fact, when I was in high school, I'm six foot two, you would think I'd be able to dunk. I can get high enough to dunk, but I can't palm the basketball. So in pregame, to to juke people out and make them think that we had somebody that was decent, I would use a girl's ball. (laughs) Boom, look at that stud! But then when it comes game time, I can't jump quite high enough to use both hands. So the prophet Isaiah is looking at his hand. And he's thinking about the greatness of God. And he says that God's hand measured out all that is. 
The entire universe is found in the hand of God. This great God is the one who with one spoken word created everything. How big is God? How big is God? Our understanding of how big God is increases our willingness and desire and passion to find refuge in Him alone. I was doing some research on, on how big the universe is. And for those of you that are, that are astrologists and, and you're, you're smarter than I am, I'm going to probably say something that's wrong. But, but here's what I found to be true. If you, if you are traveling at the speed of light, which is about 186,000 miles per second, per second, if you're traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, you would be able to go around the earth seven times in one second. It would take you two seconds to get to the moon. Now, when somebody here figures out how to do that, let me know. Because I was born for speed. I, I was born in West Texas on open roads where there was barely a speed limit. Nobody enforced it. And there were no turns for 120 miles. So when you figure that out, let me know. I want on that trip. Two seconds to the moon. But check this out. 4.3 years to our nearest star. Traveling at 186,000 miles per second. 4.3 years. It would take us 100,000 years traveling at the speed of light to just spatially cross our galaxy called the Milky Way. Scientists believe that our galaxy is one of potentially 100 billion. So in 100,000 years, traveling at the speed of light, we would just barely begin to get a glimpse of how great God is. God created all of that, and he measured it out, Isaiah says, with his hand. With his hand. You know what the problem of functional saviors are in our life? The only power we have is the power that we give to them. They're powerless redeemers. There is only one God who is great. Tim Chester wrote a book that I love, and it's called You Can Change. And if you have some time in the next couple of months, I want to encourage you to read it. But he says that behind every sin is a lie about God. In other words, he takes us back to the garden. And he reminds us of what happened in Eve's life. That she's tempted to believe that God is not good. So she takes and she eats. And sin enters our world. This is the same thing that happens to all of us, isn't it? We're tempted to believe a lie. We exchange the truth of God, Paul says, for a lie. And out of that lie, we begin to operate. And when our worlds begin to crumble, if the, if the lie in our minds and hearts is that God is not great, that he's not the one who measured out all that is with his hand, then we get to a place where we foolishly look to anything and everything else but the thing, the one who actually has the power to save us. The psalmist in Psalm 71 knows that throughout his life, from his birth, from his mother's womb, God has been with him and it is God in whom he has found refuge. It is God alone who has the power to change us and to save us and to send us 
in the places He wants us to go. You know, I think we all struggle with one of two things as it relates to believing God. One is believing that God is great, but the other is believing that this great God is an actual intimate God. A God who wants to be with us. A God who desires to hear from us. And the psalmist reveals to us that God wants us to bring everything to him. He says, I've been coming to you from before I was born. This is what you have done. I'm coming to you. I'm bringing my life to you. And I do it again at the end of my life. Sometimes I've found myself not bringing the small things to God, but only the dumpster fires. You ever been there? A spark starts in your life, and instead of bringing it to God immediately, you just let it keep burning because you falsely believe that this great God can't possibly care. And because you believe that he doesn't possibly care, you allow this spark to become a flaming dumpster fire in your life, and it eats everything up. The psalmist reveals to us that God delights in us bringing our realities to him. He he shares with us his prayer to God, and he says, God, my enemies are coming. They know that I'm weak. They are talking about it. The rumor is out. And God, it's not as if I'm bringing this to you and I've never brought anything else to you before, but this is my habit. This is how I've operated from my youth. How great is God? How great is your God? The second thing the psalmist teaches us is found in verses 14 through 21. He teaches us this, that taking refuge in God gives us the opportunity to consistently remember all that God has done. What are we talking about today? Ultimately, we're talking about two things. Who is God and what has he done? This is the foundation for the gospel. Who is God? What has he done? So he says, consistently remember all that God has done. Let's read it together. Verse 14. In light of all my realities, he then says, I'm going to stop now bringing to you the realities. You want them. You delight in me bringing them to you. But now I'm going to quickly move out of this and into remembering. He says, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of the deeds of your salvation all the day. And hear this, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come and I will remind them of your righteousness and yours alone. Oh God, from my youth, you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to those who are to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. The psalmist understood something significant for his life and relationship with God. 
that if he'll continue to keep remembering a practice in his life, if he'll remember the things that God has done, it will lead to two things. First, remembering leads to our faith being increased. We grow in confidence as we remember what God has done. And secondly, as our faith is increased through remembering, it leads to our proclamation. You know, the world has a lot of ways to try to deal with moving our fear and anxiety into hope, doesn't it? In fact, this week as I was researching what some of those ways are, I came across an article on BuzzFeed. So you know right away, good article. And the author asked the question, how can we not live in fear? How can we choose to live in hope? I just want to share with you some of the ideas. Grab a pillow and scream into it for 10 seconds until you can no longer hear your voice. I'm not sure if you lose your voice first or I'm not sure what happens there. A little strange. The second is this. Tell your anxiety to shut up and change the subject. I don't know about you, but that doesn't work for me. You'll be hearing me. My kids, I get in trouble if there's kids in the room. You're probably looking at me going, I can't believe he said that. My kids would say the same thing. Walking around the house going, shut up. I can't believe I'm thinking this again. Change the subject. Here's another one. This, one, this one's interesting. It's called ice diving. Ice diving. Now, I lived in Colorado for a season. To me, ice diving means something different than this. But what they mean by ice diving is you get the biggest bucket that you can, and you fill it with ice water. And then you shove your head in it until everything becomes numb. So, so apparently, in the numbness, it drowns out all the stuff in your head, right? Like, your circumstances apparently just kind of go away, which, you know, it in some ways makes sense, because I'm pretty sure I'm only going to be thinking about how cold my head is. But how long does that really last? This one I thought was the most interesting. It's where you find a word and you focus in on it. And, and in the video that I saw, I'm, I'm going I'm to just do it for you guys and feel like a buffoon, but you just need to see it. Banana. Banana. Still thinking bad things. Banana. Oh, God, help me. Banana! And then all of a sudden you go, oh, maybe God's bigger than the banana. What a strange concept. What a weird way to live. But, you know, I think we all tend to do that. It may not be as silly as ice diving or enunciating a word well over and over and over again or figuring out how to spell words that are long that will take our mind off of it, or screaming into a pillow until we lose our voice. But we all try to do things except the thing that help us rest in the peace of Christ. And if you're in relationship with God today, then you have an opportunity to remember what God has done. The psalmist says that he remembers all that God has done. And as he speaks them to God, he cannot even remember the sum of them. There's too many things that our great God has done for us to even remember. And as he begins to remember, he's he's reminded of the fact that he can't even remember all of it. How do you practice remembering? What does remembering look like in your life? How do you remember what God has done? 
Remembering was kind of forced on me uh, early in marriage by God because I was regularly recognizing that I forget stuff all the time. But as Sarah and I were called out of seminary to raise support and go to Colorado, I had an experience that, that with God in my quiet time that, that I regularly remember and want to tell everyone about. Because what happens when we begin to remember is that it, it ignites a passion in us for our great God and causes us to proclaim Him. What we're passionate about gets communicated, does it not? What we're passionate about gets communicated. I remember sitting in the office of First Baptist Church Carrollton doing a Bible study, doing a devotional time with God, and I came across Hebrews 11.6 in my reading, and I'm reading it. We're raising support to go and do what God has called us to do in Colorado, to reach college students at Colorado State University, and Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God, because whoever comes to him must believe that he exists, and that, ring, 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 the phone interrupts my quiet time. Pick it up. This is Josh. Hey, Josh, this is Pastor So-and-so at this church, and I just want you to know that we heard about what God is doing, and we want to be involved. We want to give you $500 a month, and we want to give you a sending gift. And 25-year-old Josh is just like, this is, this is awesome. This is great. Um, I, I'm not aware of what God is doing, that he's literally standing over my shoulder, knowing exactly where I'm reading in the text at this moment. So I hang the phone up. I put it down. After I kind of compose myself because I'm excited, I look back at the text, and it says, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Boom! This is how great God is, that he knows my moments. He knows what I'm reading. He knows where I am, and he intervenes. And as I remember that, what does it do? If you can't tell, it gets me excited. I want to tell people what God has done. So remembering increases our faith. It increases our confidence. And it leads us to proclamation. The psalmist has a vision for his life that I love. He says this in verses 17 and 18. Because he's remembering, he has a passion to tell others about God. He says this, Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hair, Oh God, do not forsake me until, and here it is, vision for his life, until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to those who are to come. Remembering changes not only your heart, but it changes your life. It changes what you want to be about. Because instead of being about you or something else, you remember how great God is. And there's no one worthy of your life except God. And so you want to proclaim to God about God to everywhere you go, to, to everyone you talk to. They have to hear about our great God because you're remembering consistently what he has done. How do you remember you know, Sarah and I were married for five years before we had our first kid. And in that five years, stories like Hebrews 11 took place. And my children would miss out on what God has done if we don't stop to tell them that. In fact, God commands that his people remember what he has done. In Deuteronomy 6, God tells his people to tell the next generation what he has done and to write his words on the doorposts of their homes, on their foreheads as frontlets. He commands them to remind the children of the next generation and the next generation of all that he has done. 
the people of Israel started raising Ebenezer's to remember what God had done. When they crossed through the Jordan River, they raised an Ebenezer. When they passed through the ocean that God parted, they raised an Ebenezer, a memorial statue, a a reminder of all the things that God has done. What does an Ebenezer look like in your life? Do you have those? Have you raised those? Do you remember the things of God? I want to encourage you this week, spend some time thinking about what God has done. Remember those things. And then spend some time thinking about how you're going to share that with others. How are you going to share that with the ones that are around you whom God has placed in your life? You know, I've shared this story before but about my son when he was born, but I want to share it again because every year on his birthday, at least once a year, I share this story with him to remind him of what God has done. And I say, Micah, when you were born, your mother was in labor for much longer than she should have been. Things weren't going well. And when you were born, the cord was wrapped around your neck twice and you weren't breathing. And the doctor turned and looked at the nurses and saw and said, call neonatal. And, and your dad didn't know what to do. I felt helpless. There's nothing I could do but the Spirit of God in me, not of my own mind, but the Spirit of God in me cried out, God, give him breath. And in that moment, God moved in your life and he gave you breath and he changed your life forever. He gave you life. The doctor turns to the nurse and says, never mind. And if I don't remind my son of that, his faith cannot be built in God the way that God wants me to help it be built in his life. So the psalmist says, remember, practice remembering. And in remembering, your passion for God will grow and it will lead to proclamation. And it will lead to telling everyone. And it will lead to a passion in your heart being that above all else, the goodness and greatness and graciousness of God is being communicated from your life to those around you. The third thing the psalmist teaches us is found in the last three verses in 22 through 24. The psalmist tells us that we should take refuge in God. He tells us that we should constantly and consistently remember. And then he tells us to unceasingly rejoice in our redemption. To unceasingly rejoice in our redemption. And before I jump in, I just want to remind you that the psalmist is in a situation where he's writing here where he's not yet experienced relief. He just wrote, my enemies are coming for my throat. They they, they hear that I am old and that I am weak and they want to take me out. And yet, at the end of his prayer, he unceasingly rejoices. And here's what stood out to me. Josh, do you rejoice only after God has fixed it or done it or worked through it? Or or, Or Josh, do you rejoice in the waiting? Do you rejoice in the waiting? Do you wait to rejoice until it's fixed? Or do you rejoice in the waiting because the truth about who God is and what he's done hasn't changed in your life? One of the blessings I got to have growing up was seeing my grandfather, who at the age of 55 began to experience the pain of life. He had to have open heart surgery. And then he had to have his bladder removed because of cancer. 
Then he had to have his prostate removed because of cancer. And for the last 25 to 30 years of his life, he spent fighting against cancer. Some seasons of reprieve, mostly seasons of pain. And what I saw in his life was an unceasing commitment to rejoice in God forever. Were there times of pain? Yes. Was he bringing his pain to God? Yes. But in the end, he was rejoicing in the God of his salvation. For all of us who are in Christ, the statement that the psalmist makes about his soul should stand out to us today. I will also praise you with a harp, he says. For your faithfulness, O my God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, check this out, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteousness all day long. For they've been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. If you're in Christ today, let me take a drink. First service got me. <clears throat> if you're in Christ today, you get to rejoice in the redemption of your soul. If you're having a hard time remembering what God has done, if you've been living in a circumstance for a long time and there doesn't seem to be any reprieve, as a believer, as a child of God, your soul has been redeemed. And that means that this life is not it for us. That means that there will be a day when we are with our Father, worshiping Him forever for His greatness and His goodness in our lives. That you and I don't have to live with fear. We don't have to dunk our heads in ice water in order to step out of our situation. We can stay in our situation instead of living in fantasy land by rejoicing in the redemption of our souls, looking to the future hope of glory that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen? This is our hope. This is where we find solace. This is where we find peace. It's in God and in God alone. It's in who God is and what He's done for us. And who God is and what He's done for us. My grandfather passed away about a year and a half ago. He was married to my grandmother for 60 years. Greatest man in my life. And when he passed, I got to my grandmother's house as fast as I could. And I expected to be the knight on the white horse, pastor grandson who's going to show up and bring faith. I was hurting. When I walked into their house, she ushered me into the back room, which was the last place where I saw my grandfather. We sat down and we prayed. And as she prayed, my eyes were filled with, with tears of joy and my heart with faith because this was her prayer and I'll never forget it. Dear Jesus, you are my husband. You have never left me. You will never forsake me. Thank you for Patrick 
Thank you for the blessing he was to my life. But God, you are my protector. And nothing has changed. It's in you that I find hope. <laughs> Woo! I walked out of that room feeling this small in the faith. With my heart enriched by the faith of my grandmother. Who for 80 years has understood these three practices. Of taking refuge in God alone of consistently remembering all that God has done and rejoicing in the salvation of her soul. I want to encourage you this week to figure out a way to put these three things into practice. Recognize your functional saviors for what they are, powerless deliverers, and look to God and God alone. Let's learn from the seasoned psalmist of Psalm 71 and let's walk the road that he has walked, faithfully recognizing that God is great and intimate, consistently remembering all that he has done. And regardless of circumstance, unceasingly rejoicing in our salvation. Let's pray together. Father, We are so blessed to call you Father, so unworthy to be called your children, but Lord, so thankful that you are the God of all grace. You are our great Father who measures all things with your hand, who spoke it all into existence with a word, And in your greatness, you still desire to know us intimately. May our hearts be encouraged today to bring all of our realities to you. Not just the big ones. Not just the dumpster fires. Lord, may we consistently remember what you have done. Remind us of the things you have done. And Lord, like the psalmist, may we declare that in our remembering, we can't even count the sum of all the things you have done for us. May our hearts overflow with gratitude and may we proclaim you and your righteousness alone. May we rejoice unceasingly in all circumstances, even in the waiting. Lord, as we do this, may our fear turn to faith. May our anxiety turn into confidence. May our despair turn into hope. You are great, O God, worthy to be praised. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you've been believing for a long time, but you need a breakthrough, I want to encourage you to come up and, and be prayed for by one of our Stephen ministers or elders. Be reminded of the greatness of God. And if you're here today and you've not made the decision to place your faith in Christ alone, then make today your day so that you can look to God as your refuge and you can experience the salvation of your soul. May the peace of Christ be with you. You're dismissed.